0: Well, a lot of virus headlines to catch up off on this Monday afternoon. The big news today, though, the CDC issuing its long-awaited guidance for what fully vaccinated people can do. They say that fully vaccinated people can visit indoors without masks, but still must wear them in public and avoid large gatherings when around those who aren't immunized or who are at high risk for contracting COVID-19. Dr. Rochelle Walensky of the CDC made the announcement earlier today.
2: Fully
3: vaccinated people can visit with other fully vaccinated people in small gatherings indoors without wearing masks or physical distancing. Remember here, we are talking about private settings where everyone is vaccinated
0: private settings where everybody is vaccinated, that long-awaiting guidance. Again, that's Dr. Rochelle Walensky of the CDC with those comments earlier today. Joining us now from Seattle is Dr. Joanne Roberts, Chief Value Officer at Providence St. Joseph Health. Uh, Dr. Roberts, thanks so much for, for joining us on this. These this guidance from the CDC. What was your reaction as a doctor when you heard this earlier today?
4: Oh, it's good to be with you tim and, and thanks so much i was uh really excited and i thought the cdc's recommendation made a lot of sense and it's a real a real gift to families especially because i think uh, grandparents uh, have been separated from their grandkids and this will be an opportunity for them to get together for the first time in a year
0: uh, some people may be saying to themselves oh no more avoiding the in-laws right <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps
1: so. <laughs> no, but it's a big step forward, Dr. Roberts. Um, but again, the caveat these are people who've been vaccinated. Like, we need to remember that there's still, and I think uh, Dr. Walensky kind of laid this out too that there are still risks out there because the numbers haven't come down as quickly as everybody had hoped.
4: No, and they have plateaued, Carol, and that, that is concerning and, and we'll see how that plays out in the next few weeks. But I think um her her comments about vaccinated people in small gatherings at private settings with vaccinated people and then also vaccinated folks who are with low risk folks. So and again, that that's the typical grandparent grandchild kind of relationship where the kids might not be vaccinated, but they're not at high risk of getting terribly sick. So they feel that that's a fairly, fairly safe environment as well.
0: You know, doctor, when I heard this from Dr. Walensky earlier today, I thought this is just a a huge win for messaging around the vaccine, because what it does is it shows you that the CDC is finally now saying you can act differently after getting this 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 life saving medicine.
4: Yes, I I agree. And and I, I welcome also Dr. Walensky's leadership in this, I think historically, the medical community has looked to the CDC as a voice of science and reasonable policy, and I think we're hearing that from the CDC now.
1: Dr. Roberts, I want to ask you, you guys have been really kind to us here at Bloomberg, and we have been talking to you for over a year um, as we've all been dealing with the pandemic, you guys were ground zero. Uh, You're one of the largest healthcare systems in the US, massive 51 hospitals, seven states, uh, massive. But the first case of COVID uh, was within your hospital system. So here we are a year later, are we where you thought we would be? And what gives you hope? What gives you frustrations or nervousness uh, as we move forward?
4: Oh, what a great question! I, you know, I Carol, we're actually in a better place than I expected. Um, I think, uh, especially with this release of the most recent vaccine, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, I, I really think that we will see something close to normalcy six months sooner than I than I would have expected six months ago, uh, for example. Uh, so, um, as bad as things have been, and We're not out of the woods yet. I think the future is looking brighter um, than I would have thought uh, a few months ago.
1: When you say normal, quote unquote normal, as we like to say, um, we've heard different things. We've heard October, November. We've heard maybe summer. What's what's your time frame in terms of society feeling a lot more normal?
4: Well, I think, you know, I'm not sure we'll ever go back to what we used to call normal. I mean, mm-hmm. I think a, a mask is going to be part of my wardrobe uh, for the, yeah. <laughs> the long term future. I mean, I, I frankly, I don't think I'll be getting on an airplane even two years from now uh, without a mask. Um, and, and that's OK. I, I mean, that's a small price to pay to stay healthy. Um, but I think we'll be seeing slowly um, larger and larger gatherings, my guess especially with this most recent report from the CDC, my guess is that by fall, schools will be meeting in person uh, most in most of the country. But I think uh, as the Biden administration has said, if we can get these vaccines out by this summer, which is looking likelier, right. uh, I think we'll all be able to gather again by can,
1: fall. Can I go to a concert anytime soon with thousands of people? Just got about 30 seconds here.
4: I wouldn't be going this spring, but uh, I, you know, you might start looking at uh, tickets
1: for the fall.
0: Ah, okay. Maybe wearing a mask, Carol.
1: Maybe, probably always wearing yes. a yeah, mask. Yeah, at a concert. Dr. Roberts, I want to ask you, it is International Women's Day, and I just think here we are still talking about women You know, having the same opportunities as men. It's gotten better, it's certainly different than it was for my mom or my older sisters than it was for me, and it will be for my daughter, uh, who's a teenager, but I do wonder, as a woman coming up in medicine, what was the toughest thing you ever faced?
4: Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> is there a list? You know, honestly, oh, there's a, there is a list. And, uh, you know, by the time I came to medicine, Carol, uh, the, more than half of my medical school class were women. Mm. So I think uh, women were part of the mainstream of learners, but they still weren't in the mainstream of leaders. And in academics, I know that is still true. Uh, there's lots of articles written about it. I will say, I just heard in our organization this morning, Um, About 55% of our senior leaders at Providence are women, which makes me very proud to work for an organization that recognizes that women can and and should step up to leadership.
0: I'm I'm wondering about, we we have heard so much about during the pandemic, how this has disproportionately affected women. Um, We've heard of women dropping out of the workforce. Are you seeing that in healthcare at all right now? I mean, we know about burnout when it comes to Doctors and healthcare professionals, especially over the last year, they have just worked so hard. What are you seeing?
4: What we're seeing is you're right. Burnout is at an all time high. Uh, we have not seen an exit from the uh, workplace, uh, but we are worried about it because once things come down, I mean, healthcare workers uh, will respond in a crisis like like all public servants. Uh, they will step up in a crisis. Our worry is that folks are so tired and so burned out that once the crisis is a little bit further along and with its past, that we'll see people leaving the healthcare field. Um, and we're working hard to prevent that uh, as things get better.
1: Wow, that's worrisome. It is worrisome, yeah.
0: What has to change to prevent that? I, I, we've already seen. I mean, mm-hmm. we've already, haven't we already seen some big changes to the way doctors uh, and, and medical students spend their early years? Uh, the 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 hours have shifted in recent years, right? To make it less taxing. Am I correct in thinking that?
4: The hours in training have changed, but the hours in practice haven't changed, and uh, and and we need to recognize that as tele. If telehealth becomes more common, that may be a way to reduce the workload on physicians and nurses. Um, we're just going to have to continue to experiment and try things out. It comes down to putting our caregivers in the center of everything we do. Mm. Uh, when what we, what we find that we serve our caregivers first and foremost, they will serve their patients first and foremost. And they'll take care of themselves better.
1: You know, I came across some stats kind of getting ready for our chat with you and women represent close to 70% of the global healthcare workforce in 2017, so a few years back, almost half of all doctors in the OECD uh countries were women. So we definitely have seen uh a lot of progress when it comes to management, like you mentioned your organization, but in general, is that the case?
4: In general, uh, that is not the case. It's better across the board. Uh, the, the area that I'm most concerned about is in the academic uh, world, uh, where our, mm. where our young people are learning how to become doctors and nurses. Uh, we want the academic world to reflect the greater population. So more than half of women, more than half of medical students are women. I would like to see the time when more than half of our senior faculty are women. It
0: is so It is so interesting to, to be talking about burnout at the same time as seeing the headlines um, that a record number of of, medical, of students are applying to medical school because they've been inspired by what has happened over the last year. And we only have about That's 20 seconds wonderful. left.
4: It's the most honorable thing I could imagine doing. So you're asking a biased
0: observer. (laughs) Yeah, fair.
1: (laughs) Well, we appreciate it as always. Dr. Joanne Roberts, thank you. Chief Value Officer at Providence St. Joseph Health. Massive health care system out there uh, on the West Coast and actually throughout seven states uh, in the United States. Joining us once again on the phone from uh, Seattle. Um, Good to hear perspective, though, in terms of one year later.
0: And I also love hearing the optimism, Mm -hmm. right? Just so optimistic about, about where we are now. This is
1: Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from
0: Bloomberg Radio. Carol, a strange thing happened in 2020. You and I talked, talked mm-hmm. about this quite a bit. Despite the fact that the U.S. economy saw the deepest recession since World War II, millions of people lost their jobs, state finances in, in general actually OK. Like, what's up with that? Yeah, so for example, Texas faced a $4.6 billion budget shortfall last July, and now it's just a fraction of that.
1: This builds on that story we talked about last week, right? It, it about does. why aren't the states in a tougher place?
0: And this one provides a little bit of another piece to that puzzle. Joining us now from the studio, stu- well, not the studios, but a studio here in the She's building. around the bend yeah. here,
1: maybe down a staircase. At, at
0: Bloomberg headquarters <laughs> is Danielle Moran, Muni Bond reporter for Bloomberg News. Her story is in the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week, and it is all about a Supreme Court case a few mm-hmm. years ago that arrived just in time for the pandemic. Hey, Danielle.
5: Hi, guys, how are you?
0: So, I'm um, good. Tell us a little bit about what happened between Wayfair And one of the Dakotas.
5: Yes. So for years before the pandemic, states and cities were worried about losing on one of their major sources of revenue, which is sales taxes. As brick and mortar retail shifted online, people stopped going to malls, stopped going to stores. They started buying stuff through their computers. And uh, that debate really came to a head in 2018 with a Supreme Court case that decided um, it was South Dakota versus Wayfair, the furniture giant, that South Dakota passed a law that allowed them to collect sales taxes on purchases from companies that didn't have a physical presence there. Um, And the Supreme Court upheld the decision saying that they were permitted to, to collect these taxes. And that really was a like fortuitous decision coming two years before the pandemic
1: when almost all shopping shifted online. Talk about timing. Well, listen, like as a consumer, right, for such a long time, I I know when we would shop too, you would find a place that didn't charge sales tax, especially on like large items if they didn't have a store and you would... I'm guilty I mean, of it. I did it in the past. Even before
0: just, that, people in Manhattan would go to New Jersey totally. years ago to do this. Right.
1: And still do. You know, you see that. So listen. So what a windfall for for um, states. Tim was talking about some of them, uh, whether it was Texas specifically. I mean, we're talking about real money, Danielle.
5: Yes, we are, and and so for example, California is the world's fifth largest economy. They reported that online taxable sales more than tripled in the first half of 2020 compared to a year earlier. New York reported a dramatic shift in consumer spending as people um, sh- uh, started shopping online more during lockdown, and this really bolstered tax collection um, and really led to a um, a a copy, I guess, collection for states that were going through some really tough times. Danielle, um, I,
1: I have to say, reading your story, it made me think, too, that, you know, whenever we talk about increases in taxes or tax policy, everybody's like, it's, ah, no, I don't want to pay more taxes. But in some ways, this was a way of easily increasing revenues, helping out states, providing another revenue stream, and kind of shared among the public.
5: Right. So this was a, the way that the Texas controller described this to me is, is for him, this was an issue of fairness. This is saying that you can, if you have to walk down the street and you can go to your local store and you have to pay sales taxes there, mm-hmm. why don't you have to pay them online? Um, and, and that was sort of a core issue for him. And then as states started implementing these laws, allowing them to co- collect from remote sellers, they also implemented laws allowing them to come from. From these marketplace aggregators, which are um, like Etsy and eBay, places where businesses can sell products to consumers. But, Daniel, that also led to
0: this. So, what I did learn in your story, too, was that not every state has been able to do this. Uh, Florida and Missouri are among the 45 states that levy sales taxes, who have not moved. To collect those dollars yet. Does, does that mean that they missed out on this they're, completely? They're working on it though, aren't they? They're working on it. Yeah. So both but,
1: states have bills making
5: their way through the state legislature, um, but experts that I have talked to say that they may have left money on the table for mm. not implementing something a little bit sooner, given this really acceleration in the e-commerce space that the pandemic sort of forced on consumers.
1: But I think it's just such an interesting way when you think about the tax base, right? And we think about federal taxes allocating to different states and so on and so forth. I mean, here's a way of really helping out states and municipalities, Danielle.
5: Yes. So this was um, the ability to collect these online sales taxes really helped mitigate some of the fiscal fallout that states and cities were feeling in yeah. the pandemic. And they were um, seeing revenues fall in other areas. So you have hotel taxes. People aren't traveling. They're, they're not staying in hotels. So that was an area in almost all states that saw a decline. And this, although not a panacea for states, really helped sort of cushion the blow um, in, in other revenue areas.
0: Now, I I know that states don't break out all the types of of tax revenue that they get, so we don't necessarily know in every single case what portion came from online sales and this, you know, quote unquote, new tax. Um, But in general, do we know from the analysts you spoke to from the reporting that you did just how much it helped in 2020?
5: So um, from the experts I spoke with that this Wayfair decision could not have come at a better time for states and local governments. If you look at Texas, for example, they gained over $1 billion in the first 12 months of collections and half a billion since they started collections just for local governments. That is a significant number, even for a state as big as Texas that was going through some pretty difficult financial expectations earlier this year.
0: I I guess the days of of finding those tax-free... Don't you remember? Did you? I totally remember, <laughs> like, and I remember when this decision came down. It was a bit. I mean, it was a big one. It was a big
1: it, fight for. A it while. was a big
0: fight, and the funny thing is, is we're talking about Wayfair here, but it was a big deal for Amazon too. Huge. Not I, as much now because they have they have distribution and like a physical presence in so many places, but it was huge. But I remember having conversations. We were buying something
1: at home. They're like, Yeah, but you gotta pay. You know, you gotta pay sales tax. Let's look somewhere <laughs> else. <laughs> we can't do that anymore. Danielle, great piece of reporting. Uh, really appreciate it. Danielle Moran, a Muni Bond reporter at Bloomberg News. Her story. By By the way, in the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine, it is on newsstands online and on the Bloomberg Terminal. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic, on Bloomberg Radio. So, this is Bloomberg Business Week, and our next guest, uh, the company that she works for, Estee Lauder, it's a behemoth when it comes to cosmetics, skincare. Come on, you know who they are fragrance. It's one of the largest in the world. They own a portfolio brand, brands, some created internally, many others like La Mer, Bobby Brown, uh, Glam Globe, MAC, and others. They've been acquired. Uh, they really have uh, their pulse uh, on uh, the consumer, especially when it comes to this space. Joining us right now is Tracy Travis, Executive Vice President of Finance, CFO of Estee Lauder, and she is with us. On the phone in New York City. Tracy, great to have you here with Tim and myself. Do we have her? Uh, Yes, can you hear me? Okay, good, good. (laughs) Yes, we can. Uh, Listen, great to have you here. And there's so much to talk about, and we're very interested in your new equity and engagement center for excellence. And I wanna get into the programs you guys have in just a moment, but I'd love to get your thoughts on today's environment. I mean, Estee Lauder is a global brand, so well known. You sell in some 150 countries. How would you describe today's global market environment right now and, and how the consumer is doing?
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the consumer, um, you know, uh, based on what we've seen globally, you know, is still um, supporting, obviously, Prestige Beauty. I mean, our, our sales, you know, are, are recovering, um, you know, every, every month, every, uh, every quarter, certainly we just uh, reported our, our second quarter results. Um, and uh, we returned to growth um, for, uh, you know, a, a quarter earlier than what we had expected. Um, but the consumer is, uh, you know, is is gradually um, you know coming back to, I think, spending um, in in the categories that uh, that are important to uh, to her like like beauty.
0: How did consumer spending shift during the pandemic?
2: Consumer um, spending sh- shifted very much um, to online, first of all. So you know, we were one of the companies that, um, our, our distribution was deemed to be non-essential globally. You know, we sell only prestige beauty. So we sell in a lot of department stores and specialty stores, um, which closed um, initially during during the pandemic um, and then uh, reopened, but, you know, traffic has been um, been a bit light um, and has gradually been building. So we saw a tremendous shift to online and we were prepared for that, you know, with um, our own uh, brand.com sites um, with our retail partners and uh, and their sites as well as some of the platforms and pure play um, Sites that uh, that we sell on um, we saw a uh, tremendous um, you know uh, shift to um, To looking for uh, her favorite skincare products whether it's La Mer or Clinique or or Estee Lauder um, Or some of the other skincare brands uh, that we uh, that we have we also saw um, a pickup in fragrance. Um, and again, no surprise, more people working from home. Uh, people um, were, um, uh, we saw our, our um, bath and body uh, category grow as well as our home fragrance category grow. Um, so, you know, those are, are some of the trends that we have observed during the pandemic. Makeup has been the most impacted, no surprise, uh, given given the fact that, you know, many people are working from home and those that are going out, um, many are wearing masks as uh, you know as instructed and so that does have an impact on particularly the largest categories of makeup foundation and and lips um, and those are categories that we expect certainly as uh, the vaccine rollout um, you know continues to progress uh, and uh, and we start to see people migrating back to work and back to school and resuming some of their social activities um, we expect, to, you know, to have a strong, strong makeup recovery at that point in time.
1: Tracy, I feel like you've described me. I spend so much more on uh, skincare uh, in the last uh, year or so um, oh, than, yeah. than, you know, certainly on, you know, traditional makeup. And it's just very interesting. You talked about, though, you know, shifting to online. And I do wonder, we've seen just an increased digitization of our world when it comes to retail, not just you guys, but everybody. And you know, uh, folks that had strategies that maybe they were going to roll out over the you know next three to five years, all of a sudden did them overnight. What has changed in terms of your digital strategies, specifically because of the pandemic and just, you know, seeing how this is how an increasing uh, number of consumers want to shop? Uh,
2: well, we had a very strong um, focus on, on online for, for many years, actually. Right. We started our online sites more than more than 20 years ago Um, and we were focused it was our fastest growing channel heading into the pandemic what we've seen is an acceleration of the penetration of of online certainly more consumers a lot of new consumers that we had not um, seen uh, purchase online previously started to purchase online obviously when uh when um uh brick and mortar um you know became uh less less uh, attractive to to shop in um during this pandemic and so we expect that we're going to continue to see those those trends coming coming out of the pandemic clearly we expect that consumers will return to brick and mortar but those that you know, have um, developed uh, the habit of shopping online, uh, we expect will continue. And we have added quite a bit of functionality to our online site. That has have many of our retail partners. We've added virtual try-on in terms of makeup, um, we have a virtual diagnostic uh, for our um, our Clinique brand. Um, we have live streaming events. We've added a lot more video content and how tos, and we've actually seen, which is one of our encouraging signs for makeup, we've seen uh, more consumers actually access uh, those videos, and uh, um, you know, with an interest in, in learning more about skincare treatments as well as uh, as well as uh, makeup um, treatments as well.
0: This is, this is a business where people like to try before they buy. Um, and, and, you know, they, they, they do that uh, in, in person, in stores. Uh, I'm wondering how the in-person experience is going to change on the other side of this pandemic.
2: We think that, you know, again, uh, you know, we have tried to add as much consultation uh, to our online sites as, as possible. But we also know that people miss that human interaction um, and that ability to actually uh, buy now, get now, and so mm-hmm. that's something that you know certainly an in-store experience uh, provides in addition to, as as you mentioned, um, being able to physically physically try on product. You know, we have sanitary practices at you know all of our counters and in our freestanding stores. Um, so you know, as consumers return, you know, we are are, are making sure that. Um, that they can try, uh, comfortably and, and, right. safe. you know, in terms of, of the behaviors post, uh, post pandemic, you know, we do expect that, you know, we ended last year with our online business, um, you know, at a 23% penetration. You know, we certainly mm-hmm. expect to grow from, from there going forward. Um, and that was quite a step up from, you know, from fiscal, fiscal 19. Um, so again, you know, we are prepared, prepared for that. Um, at the same time, though, we do expect that people will come back to, Um, to brick and mortar to try to be able to try and buy products you know um, at the same time. Um, And that's some of the benefit of brick and mortar and, and certainly um, the physical interaction that, that, you know, so many people crave these days uh, by, uh, by, by not having as much uh, as they protect themselves during this pandemic, um, we think will, uh, will resume as well.
1: Well, and I'm going to say, you know, I tend to buy more when I'm playing with the product. <laughs> you know, you just, that's the way it is. And I have to say, full disclosure, I had an aunt who was an Estee Lauder rep for many, many years in Houston. Um, you know, that whole face-to-face, and she's what got my family kind of started on all the different Estee Lauder brands whether it was prescriptives, whether it was uh, origins, you, know, you name it. Um, but I'm just curious, just to push the point, you know, increasingly a younger generation, I've got a teenager, she goes to Sephora, Like that's where she's going. How do you guys continue to move forward where you're known for your counters, um, and that's a big part of the story, but how do you start to embrace you know, increasingly the Sephora model?
2: Yeah. No, we, we actually have a very strong relationship with Sephora globally. So we have, um, you know, a number of our brands, I think right now around 17 or 18 of our brands currently in Sephora right now. Um, we have a strong presence as well, um, you know, with uh, with Sephora online. And the same with, with Ulta and Douglas and many other specialty retailers. So we have you know, throughout the course of the last, um, you know, the last five to to seven years really expanded our um, penetration in in specialty multi because the the department store channel, our historical uh, channel of distribution, um, obviously has uh, seen competition from other channels, including online. Um, So it's been important for us to be able to diversify our channel mix to be present in those other channels where, uh, to your point, younger consumers um, and other consumers as well are increasingly... Um, shopping at least part of their shopping experience uh, annually, or or all of their shopping experience. So, so we feel very good about you know how uh, how we have broadened the diversification of our channels um, to to be able to reach other consumers. And and again, online, obviously being a uh, ubiquitous um, you know to uh, and available to to everyone.
0: We, we talked about consumer shifts during the pandemic and the different way that you are expecting consumers to behave uh, post pandemic, what trends will stick. But I'm wondering about about your own employees and, and what you're seeing from your own employees, specifically when it comes to working from home, how potentially you have to make real estate adjustments at corporate headquarters and other offices throughout the world because of this new normal. What are you doing?
2: Yeah, well, we, we, so we do have um, uh, a number of our employees, to your point, that have been working from home, um, at least in, in the U.S. now, almost a year. Um, so we're, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of, uh, of, of working from home here in the U.S., and we've already passed that, universe, that uh, anniversary in, in some of our other markets. So um, we have uh, many of our offices open uh, for, um, uh, for those who want to come into the office. Um, but most people are are working um, are working from home. And we are in the process now of determining um, for a whole variety of reasons, um, you know a more flexible working model for when mm-hmm. when people do start to transition uh, more permanently back back to the office. Um, and we do expect that, you know, and uh, and we announced that we actually have uh, given up some of our office space that we had committed to here in um, in, in Manhattan. Um, because, you know, we are looking at more of a, a hybrid model going, going forward. That does a couple of things for, for us. You know, as we think about the pandemic and the impact that it's had, you know, on our, you know, our workforce, you know, our workforce is uh, 84% female. We have a lot of young mothers in our workforce mm-hmm. that have really struggled, um, during, during this time frame to, uh, work from home, um, take care of the household, take care of kids, elder care, et cetera. Um, the ability to be able to offer more flexible um, um, working r- arrangements, um, you know, depending on on the position, um will be you know will be very important for for us going going forward. And many of our policies in in the company are are very much geared towards families and supporting families given uh, given the high penetration that we have of uh, of female workers we have you know, 20 weeks of paid, you know, parental leave, we have uh, another six weeks of back to work flexibility. Um, you know, during the pandemic, we did expand childcare and elder care benefits. Um, you know, we, uh, again, are trying to support more flexible work, uh, work environments, uh, we have um, expanded our employee assistance, recognizing the amount of stress that uh, that people are um, are under. So. Um, so we do, you know, certainly are taking some of the lessons from this pandemic and, uh, and going forward, looking at how we can, um, you know, um, continue to implement some of, uh, some of the, the policies that we think will be beneficial going forward to our employees learning, learning as, uh, as we go.
0: There are a lot of companies experimenting with more flexible ways for their employees to work. And at the same time, we hear stories from Silicon Valley about people relocating to potentially less expensive areas and, and perhaps their pay being cut. Are you thinking about changing compensation at all based on where an employee lives or, or if they're coming into the office?
2: We have not had that conversation yet, no. Um, you know, we do expect that our office footprint will remain will remain the same um, you know, in terms of where our you know, the majority of our footprint is in our various markets.
1: So talk to us a little bit more about the programs that you guys have at SD Lauder. I think I love the stat you told us, Tracy, that you know, 84% of your workforce is female. That's just not typical if you go around corporate America, but it, it kind of warms my heart to hear that. You guys have recently created an equity and engagement center for excellence, and it's you know, equity and representative, representations within every aspect of your business. It's very holistic. You know, how are you doing this?
2: Yeah, so we, we um, and thank you for the question. We announced this um, uh, about a week ago, um, you know, we've always been uh, a company that has been committed to inclusion and um, and diversity, and as we think about the events of, of the last year uh, or so, in addition to the pandemic, um, you know, again, the impact that it's had on, on women, um, some of the, um, you know, racial inequities that uh, that certainly have, um, you know, come to fruition uh, um, and and uh, light, and some of the commitments that we made last year um, to uh, racial equity uh, commitments, you know, it it is it is time um, certainly for us to think about how do we evolve, you know, some of our very good practices uh and deepen uh some of the commitments that we're we've made um you know going forward and so you know our um you know our our newest center of excellence is really um geared to do that equity and engagement really work with you know our our hr executives all of our executives across the company to make sure that we are um, providing leadership and development programs um, for all employees but certainly um, you know some that are specifically geared towards women and their in their special special needs um, making sure that you know our um, you know our HR programs are really focused on making sure that we are equitable and providing opportunities equally for all right. of employees who are you know um, um, uh, ready for that next chapter in in their career so, um, it's very exciting from from a, a company standpoint. We have a wonderful leader of our equity and engagement COE, Nicole Munson, um, who uh, who has been with the company for for some time in our legal department and uh, and has transitioned over to, to lead this effort. Um, and are very excited about um, about this being another chapter in our um, you know evolution to have a more equitable workplace.
1: We're talking with Tracy Travis. She's Executive Vice President of Finance and Chief Financial Officer at SD Lauder with us on the phone in New York City. Tracy, um, we have had a lot of these conversations about inequities, equality. Uh, It's not just a 2020, 2021 subject. You know that, I know that, Tim knows that. Um, How do we really move the needle?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think... I think um, some of the things that are happening right now and some of the push that's happening in terms of greater transparency and accountability um, is is one way where we move the needle. Um, So companies are, you know, um, uh, providing um, and uh, being, you know, certainly um, asked to provide more transparency um, on, you know, gender pay equity. Um, We've committed to, to reach equity by 2023. You know, we have almost uh, gender parity right now on our board of directors, um, and we are committed to achieving and maintaining that uh, by twenty twenty five. You know, we've made. Why does it take
1: so? It's not to you guys specifically, but I do feel like when we have people put out projections in general, it feels like everything always takes so long. Why is that?
2: Well, I would say right now, um if you think about the current business environment, you know, we're not doing a lot of hiring right now. Yeah. And and also from a board perspective, it's a matter of obviously um retirement on on boards to make make room for, you know, uh for some of these um uh, some of these uh, strategies to to be able to take hold. So, look, well, you know, one of the things that we are known for as a company is, you know, uh um, when we set a goal for ourselves, we strive to um, to beat that goal. And so I'm, you know, fairly comfortable that, um, given uh, given some of the the goals that we've put in place, we will uh, certainly strive to to more than, than achieve them. But I mean, right now there you know there're not a lot of companies that are doing, with the exception of probably tech companies, you know, that are doing a lot of of hiring. So that is taken into consideration when some of these timeframes are um, are established. And no one no one wants right. to miss you know, what, no one wants to, to miss a goal. But the great thing is, um, Carol, that, you know, you know, we are being held accountable. Um, right. We're being held accountable by our employees. We're being held accountable by our board, our, you know, our CEO, our executive chairman, um, and our consumers and investors. And so, you know, that is, I think, a different environment um, than has you know, existed previously. And as a result of that, I think, you, you know, we are going to see, I'm optimistic, that we're going to see more Mm. sustainable uh, progress in in these areas. But it has taken uh, a bit of a reckoning.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right?
2: point, hasn't
1: it? Yeah, absolutely. But I think what you said, accountability, listen, Tim and I, he's heard me say it a million times. I say it to my teenage daughter, you know, accountability, accountability for actions. Like we all have to live by that. And I think that's what ultimately brings about change. Tracy, thank you so much. What a great deep dive and really appreciate all the time that you gave us today. Tracy Travis, she's Executive Vice President of Finance and Chief Financial Officer at Estee Lauder on the phone in New York City.
4: I'm rather in
0: my car. is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn on Bloomberg Radio.
1: All right, everybody, just about 11 minutes left in today's trading session. Time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Hillary Kramer, President and Chief Investment Officer at a Capital Research, author of Game Changer Investing. Uh, back with us on the phone in uh, New York City. How are you? Very
3: good, Carol, on uh, Women's International Day.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh, Nice to have you here. Hey, Tim actually brought to my attention, so I'm just going to go right there. One of the, uh, I think it's the most read story on the Bloomberg in the past hour, and it talks about how the NASDAQ 100 and the Dow Jones Industrial Average diverging the most since 1993. What does that say to you? Does it make sense to me? Part of it makes sense to me that I think a lot of those tech names, those big momentum plays, are seeing a little bit of a a reflation trade. But how do you see it?
3: The... The higher rates that U.S. Treasury 10 year bond absolutely dictates the price and valuation of the NASDAQ stocks. We, we take it, it's like pure fundamentals. It's like financial theory. We, we value these companies based on how they're going to do in the future. And when we look at these big tech names, we're looking all the way out and it just makes the valuation that much lower today. That's what's happening there. Also, people are people are trading today, and I say people, not just investors, everyone, they're in the market, they're rotating they're they're like trying to like like chase their tail, so to speak. So suddenly you know tech is out and and the realization has come. That there some really solid companies that people left for dead. For how long did I talk about Goldman Sachs or Valvoline or you know, older public insurance? Now these are getting fully valued. So we need to be really careful. Don't think that you can't get hurt. You know, on that other side. And what Charlie said before, it is a tale of two of two uh, two tapes, very much so, uh, because there's so much uh, so much selling going on. And uh, but I think the electric vehicle space has also been hurt really badly. You know, those hot new areas, that thing, you know, kind of crashed and burned very quickly. But it will come back. It'll have lots of iterations. There'll be lots of microvisions and new <laughs> Fiskers FSRs to come and NEOs. Uh, but uh, anyone who's trying to do well on those, it's not working. And that's why also we've seen this uh, this rotation. Now, also energy stocks. Of course, that's the other reason, right? The price of oil starts to rise, and the value of a dollar has dropped. Uh, I don't recommend anyone runs out and gets their Exxon. I'm happy it's at a 52-week day, 52-week high today for all of you. Have been holding it for you know the last 50 years, uh, <laughs> but uh, but it, it's really it's really a time to be really careful and find the right stocks. You know, something like Big Lots, which I loved at $10 and 17 and 20 you know, up at $70, that's sort of like a five and five below with Raymer and Flanagan mixed in with furniture. You know, think about it. This is a stock that's gone up 600%. So, um, like, we're looking, we're, we're, we've rotated, too. We're looking at companies still like Ingredion that really hasn't caught on yet. That's the old uh, corn products. It's was in the original Dow list. Um, and an ingredient, you know, with that dividend yield and with the fact that the stock really came down with expectations that the institutional food service business, arenas, stadiums was dropping, ingredient makes all, this, all the sugars, starches, corn syrups, all the cliff bars and french fries and Haagen-Dazs, I cream. Yep. you never imagine. So we like a company like INGR. We think that that still has some room to grow. So you're
1: ready to do the post-pandemic trade here?
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Even if we retrace, like we always talk about the insecurity, the unknown. The stock market hates the unknown. Even if we have a variant that comes into play and we see the numbers start to rise in coronavirus, there's a feeling, there's a sentiment nationally, other places much more than others. Mm -hmm. Certainly, New York City is more conservative and concerned and modest in their approach, but we can handle it. We can handle it. And it's not just a vaccine. It's the drugs coming out. If you do get it, you know, the masks are working, herd and yeah. people, whatever you want to well, call it. it we're all looking towards the future. Hillary, yes.
0: speaking speaking of that, I know J&J is a company that's that's on your list. What's appealing to you about, about J&J?
3: They, they've come back. In the, the stock was depressed. It had the overhang with the liability, with the lawsuits. With the, the talc. The powder, right, exactly. The baby powder. That really kept a lot of investors out. And the big institutions today, um, with all the focus on ESG and me- being socially responsible, a lot of those kinds of companies, because of the way these companies have to be rated, like a Johnson & Johnson when they have a liability and a, and a legal action against them, don't get bought. We're going to see more and more of this as this regulation comes in with ESG. But J&J, with the vaccine, People are starting to see it, understand what they do. The same with I think is going to happen with Bristol Myers. It's at sixty now. Goldman Sachs, I'm with them. They see it. I've seen between ninety five and hundred dollars targets that they have on you know three point two percent dividend yield, and it's because no one's paying attention that Bristol Myers (BMY) bought Celgene and that Oh Tesla we hear about and Revlimid and Eloquist, You know, all of those are Bristol Myers drugs.
1: So, right. It's a reminder to look at kind of what's going on more broadly and look at companies that are making fundamental decisions or or taking actions that will affect their revenue streams going fo- forward and their earnings potential. And, I, you know, J&J, like I think about those companies that have come up with a vaccine. I mean, this isn't a one year thing. This is multiple years, right? We're expecting to have to take this vaccine probably every year and just got about 40 seconds.
3: Ah, okay, and that's why a company like Sanofi, also S N Y, they're pretty much the J and J of France. But they've been doing vaccines all over the world. They have, they're in the top twenty vaccine, vaccines. Those companies will come into focus. Just be everyone should be really careful about jumping into the United Airlines and even the Disney. You know, at this point, they're still only opening up for fifteen percent capacity in Los Angeles. It's a great story. It's really a Disney Plus story. So mm-hmm. big picture everyone be careful, keep your powder dry, the NASDAQ, You haven't seen
1: anything yet. (laughs) Yeah, I got to say, shares of Disney uh, up almost 7% today. Uh, You know, everybody, Mickey, Minnie, everybody's excited about (laughs) reopening the kingdom. Hillary, uh, be well. Good to check in with you. Hillary Kramer uh, over at A&G Capital Research. I mean, you could just feel people are just like, all right, let's do it.
0: Look, on on Twitter, on Instagram over the weekend, I saw people were doing the movie theater thing here in New York City. They were getting back there. I'm not ready for that. I'm not either, but I'm not vaccinated. Yet. maybe no. i'll feel differently when i'm vaccinated you're right thanks for listening to bloomberg business week download the podcast on itunes soundcloud or bloomberg.com
1: and you can also listen
0: to our radio show at 2
1: p.m eastern on bloomberg radio or watch us on youtube search bloomberg global news